Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit of wisdom and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God for the people of God. Today, we wrap up our sermon series called Neighboring. It's built around a book entitled The Art of Neighboring by Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon. Looks like this. Jesus said in the Gospels that the two most important things in life are to love God and love our neighbors, that everything else is secondary. So that has been the focus of this entire sermon series. Loving God well, loving our neighbors well, and those beside whom we work and go to school. So here, as our sermon series is about to close, how is it going? How is it going in building relationships right where you live and work and go to school and moving from having persons be strangers to acquaintances to having genuine relationships? taking a sacred interest beside those whom you live and do life. We want to hear your stories. Go to the digital bulletin and click on the link that says, How Are You Neighboring? and let us know. We would love to hear how loving our neighbors well is making a positive impact in our communities because this is how Jesus calls us to live. Would you pray with me? God of grace and God of mercy, help us to love you. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to know how to do both of those things well. All of this we lift to you. And Lord, may the words of our mouths, the meditations of all of our hearts, Be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, our refuge. And all God's people said, Amen. A second prayer of sorts. Dear Lord, so far today I've done pretty well. I haven't insisted on my own way or had trouble sharing. 
I haven't been greedy or selfish. I haven't changed the thermostat when no one was looking. I haven't rearranged the dishes someone else put in the dishwasher because I was certain I knew how to do it better. I haven't rolled up the toothpaste tube from the bottom when everyone else insists on squeezing it in the middle. I haven't gotten frustrated with anybody yet, and I feel pretty good about that. But in a little while, I'm going to get out of bed. And then I'm going to need a lot more help. Amen. (laughs) Life with others can get messy. In COVID, we have been separated in many ways and found on one hand we miss being with people. On the other hand... Now that we've come back to be together with people more and more, some of us may miss being separated. What is it like for you? What has it been like to share working from home and kids doing school from home and trying to keep things in one piece? What is that like for you now? Maybe you have a roommate with whom you share space, or a sibling with whom you share a room. Maybe you share an office with someone else. Maybe you're married or have children, and you do life together with other people on a regular basis. How's that going? When we live with or near other people, issues inevitably arise because we are not the same. One is neat, one is messy. One likes having company. One likes having a quiet evening. One is a night person. One is a morning person. One is Republican. The other is Democrat. One likes the house hot. The other likes the house cool. One loves Brussels sprouts. The other cannot eat enough bacon. And one likes the Red Sox. The other loves the Yankees. It's hard to be different and be together. Real life with real people can get really messy. The same is true when it comes to churches. We may believe differently about certain issues, and yet we are called to be one body in Christ. And sometimes we do that well, and sometimes we don't. What began as one faith community in the book of Acts has splintered into an incalculable number of Christian sects and denominations. I googled out of curiosity number of Christian denominations worldwide and saw estimates as high as 43,000. And the lowest estimate I saw was 34,000. Either way, that is a large number. Because unity in shared life is hard work for all of us. And faith does not demand we be the same. But faith does expect us to learn how to be together and be different. And that is hard. Even when we love each other. The same is true in our neighborhoods. And I'm betting that if you've started getting to know your neighbors more, issues will arise there too because we're different. One person cannot wait to cut the grass. 
The other person, you know, waits until just before the HOA would send out one of those warning notices to go and get out the mower. One lets their child have a cell phone at age 8, and the other lets their child have a cell phone at age 13. Another doesn't want them to have one at all. Behind every door and every face is a story and a background. In the book that we've been reading, the authors describe what happened to them as they got to know their neighbors. One said a neighbor called and asked if, if they'd take their teenager to school when she overslept. And so the first time or two they asked, it wasn't a big deal, and then it got to be chronic and became an imposition, and they stopped giving rides. Another person said, well, folks started asking me for money and someone else asked to borrow my vehicle and they weren't sure what to do. The more our lives become connected, conflicts and messy relationships can occur. The same was true in the early Christian church. In the book of Acts, we track its beginnings. At the end of chapter 2, things were going swimmingly. People were getting along. The church was growing by leaps and bounds. When there was a problem, they came together and figured it out. They were happy and generous. They spent a lot of time together. And when you get to chapter 4, Scripture says they were of one heart and soul. But flip to chapter 5, people started lying to one another, withholding things. The disciples were being arrested and persecuted. And then we get to chapter 6, what Gail read for us today, and people are complaining. What was going on? The Hellenists were saying that the Hebrews weren't handling the distribution of resources in a fair way. What was that about? The Hellenists spoke primarily Greek. The Hebrews spoke primarily Aramaic. There's a bit of a language barrier and a culture barrier as the church was growing and diversity, this beautiful diversity was growing amidst the church as it grew as well. So the Hellenists complained that their widows weren't getting their fair share of the food. Women at that time, unfortunately, had no or very little opportunity for financial independence and depended upon the faith community and relatives for even a meager support. And so the distribution of resources was a big deal. And when they complained, the disciples resolved to deal with it. They called everybody together so that all those persons who were Upset could have a voice in the open conversation. They did not ignore the issue. They state the problem, unpack it a bit, establish boundaries in how they will handle it, and then recruit volunteers of solid faith and integrity from the group that was complaining to then oversee the distribution of the food. And so then the disciples bless those new volunteers and life goes on. And with a healthy resolution, the church started growing again. But when people come together, we know differences and misunderstandings can come to the fore. It is normal. 
You might be familiar with Tuckman's model of group development and growth, which has these storming, forming, norming for forming cycles within it. Meaning that the closer we grow in relationships, the more real life struggles emerge. And as one of my colleagues reminded me to be sure to say today, sometimes when we get to know our neighbors well, there are persons out there who are dangerous or abusive or toxic. And when that happens, please don't try to handle that on your own and involve some persons with some expertise and authorities to get involved. Persons like that can be a real threat to your life or to the neighborhood. The majority of problems, though, that occur are around things like different personalities, barking dogs, different politics, disagreements about how to raise children, how to keep your lawn in those lopsided favors. And when those things begin to happen, our prayers start pouring forth again. Lord, I was doing pretty well till you told me to love my neighbors. And now that I'm getting to know them, I'm going to need a lot more help. And I'm realizing, Lord, that now they're getting to know me. They're going to need some help too. So, Lord, grow us all in the ways that you want to grow us by your grace and by your mercy. When getting to know our neighbors is more than we bargained for. Acts chapter 6 that Gail read is helpful. It gives us a road map of sorts, recognition of issues, establishment of boundaries, and committing to a healthy resolution. It reminds me of that old Robert Frost poem, Mending Walls, that says, Good fences make good neighbors meaning that boundaries can be helpful for us all. The authors of the book that we've been reading point to the story of the Good Samaritan as an example. It's the story we use when we kicked off the series. They suggest that the man, of course, went out of his way to help the traveler who had been wounded and robbed. He treats the man's wounds, takes him to an inn, pays for him to stay there, and promises to come back later and check on him and settle accounts. They say in the book that this man does not drastically change his life or alter his plans in order to help the man who had been beaten. He did incredible things, yes, but he did not do every possible thing. We too can develop in our neighborhoods kind of the healthy interdependence but realizing that there are times when one takes advantage of another or is excessively over-dependent. The author suggests that when that happens, we be responsible to our neighbors and not for them. And what do they mean by that difference? Being responsible for a neighbor is taking responsibility for that person's livelihood, for their happiness, for their marriage, for their finances, for their choices. And that's unhealthy. Being responsible to a neighbor is being responsible to love them, to encourage them, to bless them, to spend time with them, to offer solutions, to pray for them, to serve them as a good neighbor but we're not responsible for their choices and 
outcomes. And that distinction can be freeing and very healthy. Because life with others will be messy at times. And despite that, or perhaps because of it, Jesus continues to call us to it. And John Wesley, that unwitting founder of the Methodist Church, writes that we are meant to be together, that there is no holiness but social holiness, that we are meant to share faith and life in community or not at all. He writes, there's no such thing as solitary religion. We're meant to be together in love. So what do healthy relationships with our neighbors look like? Well, some of you have shared some stories. One person told me that she went around in her neighborhood and invited the persons on the street to opt in or out of a neighborhood directory that she then made available to those who wanted one so they could call each other when something came up. Another person told me that he now prays for all of his neighbors when he does his daily runs or walks. He doesn't know everybody's name or what's going on, but he said, as I go by each house, I pray for the people behind the door. Another person shared with me that she and her next-door neighbor got together and decided to host a little gathering between their houses in the grass. They made up a flyer and took it up and down the street and told people to bring a chair and a beverage. They kept it simple. And folks who showed up said, oh, we can't stay long. But they ended up staying until well into the night because it was a surprisingly wonderful conversation. And somebody even said, hey, I'll host next month. Let's do it again. And our church, Ebenezer's governing board, decided to offer space to the local Stafford Spanish Seventh-day Adventist church on Saturdays for worship in one of the rooms in the other building. The church has a small congregation, and they lost their building and asked if we had a room that they could use. So we decided to be good neighbors and provide space for their Spanish-speaking congregation in the building when it was empty anyway. How could we do less? That begins October 16th, this coming weekend, on a trial basis. They were grateful for the space, and we're happy to help as their Stafford actual next-door neighbors. And in a story from the Art of Neighboring website... People came together after one of the elderly gentlemen on their street passed away. And they committed that they would cut the grass for the new widow. And they decided they would shovel her driveway and sidewalk when it snowed. And their plan was that when a snowfall came the next morning, the first one up would go over there and start to shovel. Well, it got to be a contest. And people would try to get up earlier and earlier. And then they would go over and shovel her sidewalk and driveway. And then they started doing everybody else's too. And they said, we didn't agree on politics or parenting, but this was one thing we could do and do well and love our neighbors by shoveling their driveway whenever it snowed. When we take the great commandment to love God and love our neighbors seriously, we will find ourselves in relationship with people we otherwise would never have met. Real life with real people can get really messy, for better or worse. And messiness 
need not stop us. In fact, I'm beginning to think messiness might be the goal because we're meant to learn something from it. And if we do, we're in good biblical company. Think of how Jesus put together his group of disciples. They were clearly not all the same. Zealots, tax collectors, introverts, extroverts, fishermen, two guys nicknamed the sons of thunder. They couldn't have been easy to get along with. People who were intentionally different, called intentionally to be together and model faith as one. This is the design of Christ for us. In the best of ways, with healthy boundaries, we too, by God's grace, can be examples of God's love in this world, in a world that is longing for connection and belonging and acceptance. Our culture's too polarized. We're meant to do life in community, Jesus says. In Christ, we can do more together than we can do alone. And when problems arise, we have Acts chapter 6 to help us, to show us that we can work through problems in healthy ways. So let us love our neighbors, our actual next-door neighbors, and those with whom we live and work, and let us love them well. Because this sermon series wraps up today. But the call from Jesus to love God and love our neighbors never wraps up. Jesus gives the great commandment today as much as he did over 2,000 years ago. So let us do it. Love God and love our neighbors and help us, Lord, to do it. (laughs) We pray. Amen and amen.